Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. And on the hundredth day, Trump rested. Actually, he probably shot nine holes at Mar-a-Lago. On the hundredth day, social networks of anti-Trump folks were not at rest. The agitation remained high. The sense of disbelief that he was still there, still the President of the United States, spurred a torrent of tweets and posts. Every contradiction, every bit of hypocrisy from January 20th onward was relived. Cyberfists were bumped with friends and followers in the hashtag resistance, congratulating one another and geeing up for the fight over the next hundred days and the hundred days after that, if necessary. History. Unprecedented. It has been extraordinarily difficult to keep up with President Trump. I have started writing scripts for this podcast because Trump said or did something outrageous, and within six hours he had topped it, and I put the first script aside and started a second one. And before I could finish the second, it was necessary to start a third to react to the online reaction to the first two Trump events. There is no deep channel you can follow in trying to write the first rough draft of history for this man's presidency. You're constantly going this way and that on jagged currents. So this podcast will be as rambling and unstructured as the Trump administration in its first hundred days. To begin, this presidency forces a confession of error. I have long resisted the idea that media does more than influence society a little. I disagreed with theorists and writers of fiction who think that media can impose a mirroring effect so that society emulates the programming it is force-fed by entertainment companies. But the Trump presidency makes me think I've been wrong. It does seem like we have left mere reality behind to become unpaid participants in a reality TV show. A guy I met last June in Cleveland, Ohio, August Garofoli, has become my go-to man for demotic commentary on the ways in which media shape American society. I chanced into him. I was driving around Ohio making a BBC World Service program about the state's independent voters. Ohio almost always votes for the winner in presidential races, and in 2016, independence would probably determine the next president of the United States. I drove into Cleveland place I've never been, got off the interstate, and just followed my nose, looking for a neighborhood where I had a decent chance of starting up a conversation. Driving east of downtown, I came to an African-American neighborhood and turned onto the main drag, St. Clair Avenue, near 55th Street, an area in transition. North of the boulevard was an area of 19th and early 20th century warehouses, mostly empty, filling up the space to Lake Erie, a quarter of a mile away. I'm no businessman, but I saw those buildings and said to myself, that's a gentrification waiting to happen. Loft living comes to Cleveland. Anyway, there was construction on the boulevard, and as I was sitting in the traffic, I saw several small groups of business people, white and black, go into the landmark restaurant, clearly a neighborhood meeting place, and I pulled into the parking lot, went in. It was a soul food restaurant owned by a Greek family with a very mixed clientele. I had lunch, asked the manager if I might talk to some of her customers, and she said, be my guest. I slid into the booth with two white businessmen, one of whom was August, amiable fellow, bit of a hustler, property developer who owned a few of those warehouses. My thought on gentrification was confirmed. Anyway, he validated what my previous reporting around the state had told me. 
Trump had a very good shot at winning. It's a Kardashian world, and he's the Kardashian candidate, he said. I laughed and made a mental note to include that quote in the documentary. A few days after Trump was inaugurated, back in Cleveland, different soul food restaurant, I met up with August again, and he says, Americans want a disreality of reality. That's a bit more runic. I made a mental note not to include it in my documentary, but I have been thinking about what he meant. There was a time when people knew that reality television, which is what made Trump a celebrity, wasn't real. But as decades went by, the knowledge that all the competitions for jobs or survival on desert islands was fake became vestigial. The ability to say, life isn't like that, got sanded away. Some people, many people, who knows, began to want reality to be like reality television, a disreality of reality. When Trump began his run, a lot of voters who knew the way government works in reality put that knowledge aside and voted for Trump's disreality. And they've certainly got what they voted for. This is not the first time, however, Americans have voted for this sort of figure. Ronald Reagan had been in movies, but didn't really become a celebrity until he appeared regularly on television, first as the host of General Electric Theater, and then fronting Death Valley Days, a TV western. Throughout the Reagan years, there was plenty of opposition commentary about the president thinking that he was starring in another B-movie, and his voters loved watching him. The word meme hadn't been invented and had nothing to do with satirical visuals on Facebook, whose founder had not been born yet, but posters showing Reagan in cowboy gear pointing his six-shooter out at the world adorned plenty of walls around the U.S. The same thoughtless bellicosity that Trump trades on was not unknown to Reagan, threatening to bomb Russia in five minutes or to outlaw the country at a time when the Cold War was at its height. The difference between Reagan and Trump's pronouncements is that Reagan could threaten nuclear war with an ironic twinkle in his eye. Trump's acting range isn't anywhere near as great. Still, on the anti-Reagan side, the hyperventilation over these comments was as nonstop as that over Trump today, and just as ineffective. The Reagan administration pretty much did as it liked, no matter how loud the protest. The wars in Central America that U.S. proxies fought with various left-wing liberation groups cost hundreds of thousands of lives, destroyed civil society, turned countries into narco-states, and sent a stream of refugees north to enter America illegally. They're still coming. It also led to Iran-Contra, a scandal as murky as they come. None of this stopped Reagan running and winning a second term, even though many around him knew he was slipping into the grip of dementia, something the hashtag resistors need to remember as they plot strategy. It's a very long game. About midway through Trump's first hundred days, there was a brief flurry of groupthink among liberal cyber friends of mine. They'd had it with the idea of sympathy for the WWC, white working class, the first phase of post-election cephalogy had pointed to this group of traditional Democratic voters in the key states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin as being the group most neglected in American society and who had deserted the party, voted for Trump, and put him into the White House. My liberal friends said, forget their class. They're racists and sexists and not deserving of sympathy over what Trump's policy would do to them, though they used much harsher language than that. 
I was a little taken aback for a couple of reasons. There were too many straw men in the arguments. It's not the white working class. It's the white non-working class that abandoned the Democrats. And my guess is just abandoned voting participation in democracy a long time ago. I have yet to see turnout figures in places where the non-working class lives. But my guess is that it's low. Also, it turned out that the key to Trump's victories was white Democratic voters in Michigan and Wisconsin who might still be considered working class and had voted for Obama twice. So where does the racism argument go? They're sexists. Well, maybe, but then it was reported that Hillary Clinton's campaign managers turned down requests from organizers on the ground in those states for the candidate to come and campaign. The organizers knew what I had been told in Toledo, Ohio in June of last year, that her support was very soft. People saw her as aloof. She needed to get among the voters, press flesh, simply be in the vicinity a bit. But she didn't make the effort. Anyway, my very liberal friends backed away from talking about this after a while. There was so much else to be exercised about. But it left me thinking. There was something quite shocking about the vitriol heaped on those who should, in their view, be supporters of whoever the Democratic Party nominates. It was racial, if not racist. It made me think of dozens of arguments I had in the 1980s with white suburbanites who couldn't understand why the ghettos, post-civil rights, had become sinkholes of arson and drug abuse. These conversations were racialized as well. There was a flaw in black people that made them behave this way, and they don't deserve sympathy anymore, was the gist. I grew tired of explaining that the civil rights era hadn't undone the condition of social and economic deprivation in which many African Americans still lived. I had detached myself from my social class by then and experienced being broke. I wasn't trying to emulate Orwell. It's just I had failed at my first career and was not established in my new one. I had a small inkling of the unconscionable pressures that poverty puts on people in the modern world. What seem like bad decisions from the viewpoint of well-to-do suburbs may not seem like a decision at all when living in deep impoverishment, but rather it's just one more action imposed by a life lived with no control over circumstances. I find it odd to have to explain to liberal cyber friends who live in good suburbs and have excellent jobs that the people left behind by decades of deindustrialization and who happen to be white are entitled to the same reflexive empathy that liberals have extended for the last six decades to people of color. Choosing to smoke crack, which even the addict knows is bad for him or her, and choosing to vote for Donald Trump, which even the more impoverished Rust Belt voters knew was bad for them, is a product of social and economic conditions. I don't mean to come over all Marxist here, but I do think the liberal side of the argument should be a bit more colorblind when looking at the ascension of Trump to the presidency. The press has taken a beating from the president, but that's not unique. All presidents end up beating down on the news media. It's proof the press is fulfilling its function. Nattering nabobs of negativism. Who said that? Younger listeners may not know. Hint, it was nearly 50 years ago. Guessed yet? Okay, it was Spiro Agnew, Richard Nixon's vice president, who eventually resigned in disgrace over tax evasion. The line, nattering nabobs of negativism, was written for him by William Sapphire, a Nixon speechwriter who would leave politics and become a member of the press himself, 
as a columnist for the New York Times. We'll leave that irony aside, except to point out that the first institution in American life infiltrated by what is called neoconservatism was the supposedly liberal New York Times, a fact too easily forgotten by the propagandists of American conservatism. Anyway, in that same speech, Sapphire had Agnew say of the press, They have formed their own 4-H club, the hopeless, hysterical hypochondriacs of history. Sometimes, in this first hundred days of Trump, I have thought that two of these 4-H's describe my colleagues covering and commenting on this administration. Hysterical hypochondriacs. There has never been a president like Donald Trump, that's for certain. But his every move seems to cause an explosion of hysteria, accompanied by not so much breast-beating as chest-clutching, like when you have indigestion but are convinced it's a heart attack. This impression is caused as much by social media as my colleagues' actual reports. Twitter can be fun, but it also allows those of us on the outside an unfiltered glimpse of journalists' inner workings and I'm not sure that's a good thing. I follow a lot of DC correspondents on Twitter, and it makes me feel like I'm part of the pack, hanging around Senate hallways or outside committee rooms, cynically bantering, waiting to grab quote from the newsmaker of the day. But too often during these hundred days, these Twitter feeds have become an exercise in group hysteria over the hypocrisy or inconsistency of the Trump GOP car crash. An example. When Secretary of State Rex Tillerson took only one reporter on his first trip to Asia, and not from a mainstream outlet, but from an alt-right new media website, the shrieking on Twitter was astounding. War on the press. Assault on the First Amendment. No, really, it's not. There's no statutory requirement for the Secretary of State to take reporters on his plane. And as for the alt-right media... In 1994, after Newt Gingrich seized control of the House of Representatives in the Contract with America election, they made Rush Limbaugh an honorary member of the Republican caucus. This has been going on for a quarter of a century at least. Anyway, it makes me wonder about Watergate. If Woodward and Bernstein had been tweeting about everyone stonewalling them or putting up threads connecting dots before all the dots had been thoroughly reported, would they ever have got to the heart of the story with all the consequences that followed from their reporting? Here's an educated guess. Every single journalist under 50, and most working hacks are under 50 now, got inspired to a lesser or greater degree to get into the profession from watching all the president's men mainstream, new, or alt-media, they all saw that film, which still holds up, and thought, I want to do that. But they seem to have forgotten the critical lesson of that movie. When you are reporting on malfeasance at the highest level of American government, you don't run the story until you can connect all the dots. You keep it under your hat until then. Much of the dramatic tension in the film centers around the reporter's natural desire to get their stories out, and the Post's senior editors telling them that the story is not ready, it isn't nailed down. Funny, in Britain, rather than say nailed down, editors say, can you stand the story up? Oh, anyway, when Jason Robards, playing Post-executive editor Ben Bradley, finally says in a tense, flat voice, run that baby, it is the quiet climax of the film. Woodward and Bernstein have got the goods.
I just can't imagine that happening if they had been busy letting the public see their process via Twitter. I hope whoever the Washington Post, New York Times et al. have on the Russia story, the one thing about Trump that could turn into a Watergate-like scandal, not how much money it costs to fly to Mar-a-Lago, not the nepotism, not the arrogant ineptitude, I hope they are keeping what they know under their hats until their story is nailed down and they can stand it up. It took a full year of reporting for Woodward and Bernstein to connect Watergate directly to Nixon. And the scandal started from a genuine crime, a burglary. And it was the trial of the burglars that opened the door for deeper investigations. That doesn't exist yet on the Russia story. It would take another year after that, by the way, before Nixon was forced to resign. 100 days followed 100 days followed 100 days during Watergate. My colleagues, my friends in the hashtag resistance, maybe you, dear listener, you need to pace yourself for a marathon. And if you really know something that could topple Trump, don't tweet it. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, it means you probably thought this piece was interesting. So please share with as many people as you can. Tweet about it even. And go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, where you can find much more to listen to. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.